agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Hi, Jay. Hi, Mike. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our newest sustaining supporters, uh, Michael, Delia, Melissa, Peter, Diana, and Charles. We really do appreciate all of your support. And of course, as a Patreon supporter, you not only get a second full-length episode every week, you also get ad-free versions of all of our shows, as well as various other things at different levels of support. If you'd like all of this bonus content, but you can't afford to financially support the show right now, that's not a problem. Just email me at mike at politicsguys.com, and I'll make sure you get access to everything that we're putting out. All right, Jay. So... You know, I, I thought we had things ready to go, and then there right. was some pretty uh, monumental and uh, very sad news. Of course, I'm talking about the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, uh, President Trump, Trump's statement, I think, put it well, saying she was a titan of the law, renowned for her brilliant mind and powerful dissents. Joe Biden called her an American hero a giant of legal doctrine and a relentless voice in the pursuit of that highest American ideal, equal justice under the law. Uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, now, uh, uh, now, within hours of her death, Senator Mitch McConnell released a statement declaring that President Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. And also within hours after, former President Barack Obama issued a statement calling on Republican lawmakers to not fill Justice Ginsburg's seat. So that's where we are with 45 days until the election. Uh, to think that, you know, you didn't think that things would get any more insane, but wow, here we go. So what do you, uh, what do you make of this? Where does this put us, Jay, do you think? Well, that's that's a, a huge question, and I'll I'll tell you, um, I I like to be uh, on this show sort of as as, as candid and and brutally honest as as I can, um, and uh, particularly even when it comes to my own limitations. And I'll tell you, the, <laughs> I, I'm I'm going to put out there that I don't really know, um, and to, to to the extent that there are a lot of people out there saying they do know, um, uh, I think they don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Again, it's just sort of um the way this this year has gone um there's there's so much that is weird and different and strange that said um i i would still predict that republicans are going to make a very strong push uh to get a uh, a replacement uh nominated and uh, confirmed um before the end of the year um uh, to to what extent that happens before the election after the election um uh, is is still really? I, I'd have to say I think it's beyond my my grasp. If, if I'm looking at this thing honestly, I think probably beyond a lot of people's grasp. Um, but uh, it, it's going to be a uh, wild ride. Like, there's a lot of things we could talk about. Um, you know, I yeah. want to point out on that on that Jay already. Senator Murkowski uh, said that uh, on Friday, this is before Justice Ginsburg's death was announced, she told Alaska Public Radio that she was against confirming a new justice before the election. 
Right. And then back in 2018, Lindsey Graham, who's the chair of the Judiciary Committee, said in an interview that if there were a Supreme Court vacancy in the last year of Donald Trump's term, he would not act on a nomination before the election. Uh, he right. was, I believe, contacted on Friday and he wouldn't. Uh, there was no comment on that. Also, Senator Ted Cruz uh, back in 2016 said it has been 80 years since the Supreme Court vacancy was nominated and confirmed in an election year. There was a long tradition that you don't do this in an election year. So there are a number of Republicans who have at least indicated some concern about doing this and maybe some Republicans in tight races who might strategically think it would be uh, disadvantageous perhaps to do this. And with the 53 to 47 margin, it's not necessarily assured that uh, Senator Graham or sorry, Senator McConnell actually has the votes to push through a nomination. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree. I would tend to think, um, you know, that with with the potential defections that, that we've heard so far, being Collins uh, to being um, uh, Murkowski. Um, that I think you could probably say would, would definitely not vote to uh, replace somebody. Um, uh, and, and, and well, and again, it's, it's a weird thing when you're saying before or after the election, um, there's, there's sort of a presumption there, right? That if, if, uh, if Trump wins, then, then they could go ahead and do a replacement. Um, if he doesn't, they do it in a lame duck um, uh, session. Uh, that's, that's a different story also. Um, but I, my sense is, when when push comes to shove, they they would have the votes. Now the the interesting question is, uh, yeah, what do you do about some of these close races? Uh, you do it before or or after the uh, the election? Because I can argue it both ways. I, I think you could also have a situation where uh, there are some races where not moving on this uh, would hurt the uh, the Republican candidate. Um, so I I think it's it would cut both ways. Some races it's it's going to it would be a, um, you know, let let's wait and uh, uh, see how the election turns out. And the other uh, would would be, um, you know, no, this is what we elected you for uh, is to fill a judicial vacancy. So, uh, yeah, I think that's going to be sort of a state by state analysis, right? And again, since since this happened last yeah. night, I haven't really had the, the you know time to think through that, and I don't know that a lot of people have. Well, you know, um, another wild card in this, Jay is, as always, the the biggest wild card is President Trump. It's We're recording this on Saturday morning, and as of yet, the president hasn't announced uh, a nomination that he'll be making one. But there, you could, there's a case to be made. I'm, I'm waiting by the phone. Well, well yeah. There's, but, I mean, there's a case to be made that President Trump might not want to nominate anyone, and the idea being that if he says he won't nominate anyone until after he is reelected, that would be a spur even more so for conservatives to get out and, you know, get out and vote it could potentially help him. And also you could argue to a lesser extent might with some wavering voters say, see, he doesn't trample over every democratic norm or tradition. He waited on this. And so I can certainly see a strategic argument in favor of President Trump waiting because it's not like Donald Trump cares a whole lot about the court's makeup. At least I don't 
think oh, so. I think no, I, I think you're, I, I think you're entirely wrong about that. You know, in fact, uh, there was an interview last year, Donald Trump said, I had no idea how important Supreme Court judges were to a voter. No idea. <laughs> well, well, now he knows. Yeah. I, but I'm saying that if, if we assume that Donald Trump's first priority is Donald Trump, and I think that's yeah, a very a safe assumption. assumption. And his first calculation is always what will be in my best interest. Then I think there's a case to be made that he might think that in his best interest is to hold off on a nomination to rev up the base to get out and vote even more. Now, I don't know if that's going to be the case, but we'll we'll certainly find out. I expect we'll hear something, you know, probably in the next in the next day or two, I would imagine either way. Yeah, I don't I don't like I don't think the math on that works. Um, Explain. Just, well, I, I think uh, I, I don't think you are and everybody's going to come after me. I'm, I'm look, I'm being purely analytical here. Um, I, I don't think that you're going to move any undecided or or Biden voters into your column. If you say I'm going to wait, um, I, I, I just, I don't, I think those, those folks are pretty much filled in there. And, well, and let me, let me stop, let me stop you there, same. Jay. Let me stop you there if we get to the second part. Cause you said you won't move any Biden voters. I, I agree. But when you say undecided voters are built in there, I, I would argue that that's sort of, that, that doesn't make sense to me because undecided right, right. voters By definition, are, if they're undecided, they can be moved. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess my issue is with this, be something that would would move them, um, and I don't I don't know that it would. It's so I, I you know when when you and I talk about things and and we talk a lot about institutional norms and traditions and and that sort of thing and uh, because those things are those are things that that we find important and interesting and valuable. Um, I I think your average guy on the street uh, is less invested in that. Right. But, th- but uh, this race isn't about that. I mean, the, the the Trump campaign isn't really the Trump campaign is all about revving up the base. And so yeah. my argument here is that if Donald Trump says if reelected or when reelected, sorry, that would always be the Trumpian yes. way to put it. When reelected, I will nominate this person, but not until I am reelected. All of a sudden, then a lot of socially conservative voters say, well, i Damn sure that I'm going to get out the vote and drag people to the polls because this is huge. This is an opportunity for us to change the court in a, you know, in a, in a way, if you take a look at the ages of the justices, that could be a, in, that could be a conservative, a strong conservative majority for perhaps even a generation. And that's a huge impetus that wouldn't exist if there's an appointment beforehand. That's my argument. Yeah, but that's, that's what I mean. I think, I think that. That just doesn't work because I, I think that would would I think you're I think you're misreading the the base. Got it. Uh, I, okay. I think that would that would de- de-energize them. They the, the response would be, "Geez, at least we thought we could count on Trump." Uh, hmm, there, okay. There would be there would be this look. We put up with all the um, uh, the nonsense and and his his personality traits and the, the tweets and the uh, all the other goofiness and sort of the saving grace was. This was a guy who who wouldn't back down, who wasn't a squish, who wouldn't say, well, all right. Um, and, and I think if if that happened, I think there might be some substantial drop off. Like, look, this is the whole reason um, uh, I voted for Trump was he's the guy who would say the hell with the norms. Let's get stuff done. I, and I think that's 
I don't, I don't think he, I, I don't think that energizes the base of just, Hey, wait and see, uh, elect me again. And then I'll, then I'll really, uh, get him. Um, and likewise, I don't think it moves anybody who is, uh, undecided for the reasons of, um, look, if you are say, and, and I think a lot of people are reasoning, look, this is going to be, um, a battle that is going to be fought sort of in the, the upper Midwest, uh, rust belt sort of thing, like, like, uh, 2016 was. Um, if you're the guy in, in Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota, whatever, um, who is again, a undecided voter who would be typically, uh, are, are typically less engaged, uh, typically less educated, uh, focusing more on pocketbook issues. Uh, are, are they going to, are they going to be motivated to like, uh, look, I'm going to, I, maybe I didn't turn out last time. Maybe I don't like Donald Trump, but. But damn, he's respecting some institutional norms there, and and that's what matters to me. I just, I just, sure, yeah. I just don't think that's that's a motivator there. I think they're looking more at, at pocketbook things. You and I look at, at at that sort of thing as as a big deal. Um, what do you what do you think about uh, Lindsey Graham? I mean, he he was pretty clear in that statement, and not only that, but he's facing a surprisingly close race against an opponent, Jamie Harrison, who's raised a ton of money, and Lindsey Graham's seat is actually in a you know a certain amount of of jeopardy, and he's right at the at the heart of this. Do you think he's going to? Uh, you think he's going to renege on his promise to not act on a nomination before the election? Uh, probably. Okay. And do you now, think? Whether, that, I mean, again, whether um, you know, I, I don't know when we. <laughs> I don't think he's going to come out and announce I'm reneging on my promise. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think there would be listen situations of change and circumstances are such that you know it, it would be that kind of thing and. And, and so uh, listen, we, we owe it, we owe them uh, a hearing and, you know, that kind of thing. So, right. And so, so Ted Cruz, when he's asked about, there was a long tradition that you don't do this in an election year. You think he's going to, uh, he's going to say, well, this is different. And I just said that because I was looking for an excuse to not uh, have a hearing on, on uh, Merrick Garland. Um, well, particularly if he's the nominee, yes. Yeah, um, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think with the Senate in, in doubt that he would never. I, I would, I wouldn't think so either. I, and I think he would. That would be that would uh, fire. But um, no, I, I look. I, you know, politicians are are hypocritical all the time. And well, and, Mitch McConnell uh, though would, occupies a special uh, honorable sure. place. They should build him a. They should build him a grand pedestal on the altar of. Uh, political hypocrisy and so but but anyway that's yeah that's we've talked about that before but, so you know but but my point is that i think um yeah you gotta you gotta look to uh it it, it does come down to uh um, you know machiavelli wasn't wrong on, on a whole lot of things right and and um well, he was he was a correct observer and i i really think that um well let's talk about that jay Let's talk about right and wrong. I know that puts you on uncomfortable ground because you'd rather just talk about Machiavellian power politics and so forth. But well, let's yeah. let's talk about right and wrong because I think it's important. Uh, what would the right thing to do be, in your view? I think the right thing to do, and this is what I said the right thing to do with Merrick Garland was, is let's have hearings. Let's have hearings and move forward and see where things are. And let, and again, to, you you I went on. I've been on record numerous times that that's what should have been done with mm -hmm. Garland. And, and to put that into context, to give people a sense, so we have forty five days until the election. 
106 days until the until the 117th Congress, the next Congress convenes. So it's basically you got that 106 days from right now. This is Saturday, uh, the September 19th. And to give you a sense, the Gorsuch confirmation from nomination to confirmation took 66 days. It was a little longer, 89 days for Kavanaugh, given all of those issues. But roughly, if, if the confirmation process took the normal amount of time, this would be enough time. Of course, there are other things intervening because normally Congress sure. doesn't do much of anything. And normally, yeah, normally everybody's out of town for the next and so, but but in terms of if, if you know if 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 Mitch McConnell called the Senate back in and they focused on this, this was their one thing, which I'm assuming it would be. There is nothing to say there would not be enough time to hold normal hearings in very abnormal time. Obviously, yeah, I would, I would, I would think, and and the way I I look at this, and uh, again, you're asking me what I think is the right thing to do. That's right, as opposed to doing the analysis of the, how things may actually happen um, is, yeah, let's, let's have hearings on nominees and let's, let's get a sense of um, let's uh, senators get a sense of uh, what their, their, their uh, constituents think. Yeah. And I'm going right? to I mean, actually, they, cause again, it could go, it could go either way. I think you could have a, uh, you know, you could have a, a, a great, most you you definitely will have a a terrific nominee. Oh yeah, the best ever. Terrific, fantastic, uh, best nominee ever. Um, uh, and um, you know, let them let them campaign on that. Of hey, I want to nominate this person. I want this person on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I'm I'm holding. We're holding hearings. Here's here's what they've said. Um, and and you know, take it from there. Um, I and again, that was that's what I said they should have done with uh with Garland. Um, as well. So. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to agree with you here, and it's definitely an agreement that's against against my you know interest in terms of how we like the court to be constituted. Obviously, is that you know, I, and I think I've said this on the show before as well, is that you know the president's term is a four year term, and the Congress is there for you know a two year. Well, and sorry for the Senate; those terms are those terms; they don't end magically in the lame duck period, those people were elected for that entire term. And so in that sense, taking any sort of legislative action during the time when they were duly elected, I, I don't see that as being any sort of anti-democratic thing. And, uh, you know, if that means that, you know, if that if that leads to a result, that is certainly not what I want, which would probably be the case, then, you know, that that stinks for me, basically. Yeah. And no, so, I, I, I think we're on exactly the same same page here. And and I would I would add the, the piece that um look, this is necessarily a, a political question. Um and that's that's sort of what, what uh so when when you you know let's let's put it in play, right? Um and, and I uh, would so I guess I would say that certainly that uh the Senate has the right to go ahead with it. It doesn't yeah. violate anything. And no one, I don't think anyone's really argued that, but in terms of whether it is the right thing to do in a larger sense for the country or that, I think that's kind of left up to the individual, individual senators who I think largely are making that based on political calculations. Right. And so. But that's good. That's the way it's supposed to work. Right. Though, right. Right. I mean, I, I would say, and this is going to sound, this is going to sound uh, Machiavellian or, or callous or something like that, but, 
to some extent, uh, politics is is what you can get away with, right? Uh, what people will accept. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in uh, with the the Garland nomination, there was the the uh, big issue of look, McConnell uh, wasn't going to hold hearings, and the Democrats campaigned against him on that. Uh, and their sense was, their hope was, that would be a big deal to the American people. Um, would view this as no, it, it was Barack Obama's nominee to, to a point. He's got to get it. He's got to get a hearing. Um, but everybody showed up and you voted, and and in yeah. large part that that didn't matter to people. Maybe it matters more to people this year. Um, but either way, um, you know, so often when we talk about institutional norms, uh, there is sort of a well, what what are the voters going to accept? Uh, and if they say, look, we. We think the institutional norm ought to be if you're the president, you get to appoint your your guy, and the Senate ought to ought to vote vote for him, yay or nay. Uh, fine if if they think that it ought to be there ought to be deference um, to the to the election and potential incoming president, um, then they will make that note to their, their yeah. senators. And so just like and if, that's, if, and that's yeah. good, that's the way it ought to work. If enough Kentuckians have a problem with Mitch McConnell's colossal hypocrisy, and you know, and not having a hearing for Garland on made up grounds and, but pushing through, uh, you know, whoever, and, and I'm sure that, uh, is that how they're, getting, they're going to, to word the polling question? You know, like, well, <laughs> but I mean, no, but, but that, I mean, you, but, you, I mean consider you have a poll with his, but, but no, it's not the polling question, right? It goes to your point. If, if voters, right, yeah, if, yeah, you know, voters care about I'm, that. I'm enough. Just, I was just yeah, yeah. joking about the, the formulation yeah. of the question. You know, and another possibility is a, a number of these senators could say, well, you know, I don't think we should act on anything until after the election, but still, between the election and the new Congress coming in, there are still 61 days, which would be yeah. a quick process. And a lot, a lot of those senators who are in tight races, who might see a strategic advantage to saying, no, I'm not going to act on anything during this election season after if, especially if they're defeated, they might say, you know what? Oh yeah. No, let's, let's push it forward. So I could certainly yeah. see that being, but I think overall, my best guess on this is that there will be a Supreme Court justice confirmed before the 117th Congress uh, uh, sits, is, is my guess. That that would be my guess also. Or, you know what, I, I'm going to go back on that. I'll say... We well, can't go back on that. Uh, no, well, no, I, I need to... I think Donald Trump will get another Supreme Court justice confirmed because if he wins re-election, then I think that the senators will say, you know what, let's not rush this. There's no point, right? depending on how the elections come out. But if he loses, then it will be pushed through in the lame duck session. That's, I guess that's what I mean. I think that the, the balance of the court will shift to six, three conservative, conservative justices based on this. That's, that's my. Well, and there was also, there's more, there's more to it than, than whether president Trump wins or loses. It also. Yeah. Is, the Senate uh, composition power shift in the Senate. Absolutely. But I think um, no matter what, the, the Republican, the 53 Republicans in the Senate will have that opportunity to confirm a justice. And maybe it gets down. Maybe they lose a couple of votes, you know, but uh, they will. Yeah. But I think that still whoever it is gets gets confirmed, though, I, I assume that that they'll probably pick somebody who will be able to be pushed through fairly easily and not one of the more kind of firebrand sort of folks that President Trump suggested that were on his list that he released, I think about a month ago or so. Well, it was, it was, it was more recent than that, even I thought. And that's, that's something that, you know, I think maybe gives a little hint here that, you know, they maybe had a sense that this was coming. Um, 
again, I mean, Justice Ginsburg was 87 and had been in ill health. So it's not that people, no yeah. one had a, a sense that this was coming. Yeah. Um, but they may have had a sense that it was is more imminent than, right. than the rest of the public did, but by the fact that they sort of released some, uh, some potential names. And I think, I want to say it was maybe like two weeks ago, if not even a week ago. I thought it was a little longer, but it was fairly well, yeah, recent. It's, it's yeah, like yeah. time gets, time is sort of weird and compressed in, That's in true. these strange days. You know what I mean? It's sort of, um, remember like 12 years ago when they impeached uh, President Trump? <laughs> yeah. Um, you, know, it's like, you know, and this gets, uh, this goes back to something I've been thinking about. This whole process of when will he or she die or retire or something like that. I think what a, to me, it just seems like an insane, an insane way to do things. And that kind of goes to my, one of my many proposals for improving, I think, improving our institutions. And what I would institute is having one automatic appointment every four years in the January after the midterm elections. And that means at some points the court will be larger. Uh, you know, it could get up to 10, 11, 12, but of course the size of the court has changed over time. And I would also add to that, that uh, on a death or retirement, no, there'd be no new appointment unless it takes the court down to fewer than say nine justices. And there'd be much more regularity in that. And there wouldn't be these just, oh my God moments. And it's a sort of strange, come on, RBG, hang on. Or, you know, I hope X, you know, it wouldn't be bad if X dies or retires or something like that, which just seems to me to be a, a, a crazy way to do things. Right. No, there is, there's, there's certainly some, uh, there's a big element of chance that just yeah. kind of. And that's, that to me, into, it's just that, I, I just think that's just sort of a, uh, bananas way to, to, to do things. And, uh, the nice thing about nice thing, I don't know, but, uh, the kind of the idea that I have, it wouldn't require, you know, changing the constitution or anything like that, because of course, Congress, uh, Congress sets that, you know, and it could be a very straightforward sort of thing to do. So I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Well, there's, there's also sort of, a, um, you know, again, the randomness that you talk about. I mean, I, I subscribe to sort of a, a little bit of a, a quantum mechanics theory of, of government um, in that, you know, listen, we have this, this very rational system uh, that is built around constitutions and laws and statutes and procedures uh, written and unwritten. Um, but when you come down to base, the more you look at it, the closer you look at it, uh, the more it is sort of, there, there's an element of randomness that, that can't be taken out of the system. Um, and and I think this might just be one of them because um, I think even your proposal would would insert the same randomness to some extent, right? Or it wouldn't it wouldn't eliminate it. It'd uh, be less entirely. random because we yeah, would know exactly yeah. when Supreme Court appointments were coming. Right. And unless most of the gets, time, unless probably, somebody gets hit by a bus, right? But uh, you know, but I mean, but you think about it. Most of the time, the court would probably have. 10 or 11 members. And so even if somebody got hit by a bus, there wouldn't be a new appointment. You lose two, three, four. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. It would have to be a, it'd have to be a colossal tragedy. So actually my proposal would take almost all of the randomness out of it, which is why I think that that's a, you know, a, a, a good thing. And I should point out, Jay, that in the midst of all this, there is a, uh, there's the potential for a government shutdown because, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I, I, yeah, I, I would say I, I don't think that's going to happen, but I suppose there's a potential for it. Well, I, I think that Democrats will be under a lot of pressure to do everything they possibly claim, that possibly can to 
slow down any potential hearings, and that is going to be you know one possible tool in the arsenal. But it 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 went from you know all of a sudden things went from being pretty wild to just being oh my god unpredictable. I this just throws yeah. a lot of stuff up into the air. Yeah, and I am sure. We will be talking. That's that's why I, at the beginning of this, said, "Look, I I am holding off on my uh, predictions." And and again, I am uh, I am looking at at this as as kind of the quantum mechanics kind of issue. I think that's very wise. Randomness, and we won't know what happens until it happens. Absolutely. So I am sure we will be talking a lot more about that. But for now, let's move on to our next story. This week, CDC Director Robert Redfield, who's testifying before the Senate, said that while the coronavirus vaccine will be available by the end of the year, it will likely be mid to late 2021 for it to be distributed to the public to the extent that we can get back to what he called our regular life. And Redfield argued that because a vaccine might be, you know, at best, maybe around 70 percent effective that masks offer more guaranteed protection against COVID. And he also pointed out that Congress has yet to appropriate the estimated $6 billion needed for distribution of a vaccine. He told the Senate committee that providing that money is as urgent as getting the manufacturing facilities up and running. And shortly after that, President Trump called Redfield's vaccine timeline an incorrect statement, saying distribution is going to be very rapid. He, meaning Redfield, may not know that. Maybe he's not aware of that. And maybe he's not dealing with the military, et cetera, like I do. Distribution is going to be very rapid, and the vaccine is going to be very powerful. The vaccine is going to have tremendous power. It's going to be extremely strong. It's going to be extremely successful. The president also said the vaccine is much more effective than a mask. The mask is not as important as the vaccine. He further went on to say the mask may help, and I hope it helps. I think it probably does. But again, the mask mask is a mixed bag. There are some people, professionals, that don't like the mask because of the touchiness. Um, Okay. On the same day, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden raised concerns over political considerations overriding public safety. He said, I trust vaccines, I trust scientists, but I don't trust Donald Trump. And at this point, the American people can't either. Biden also said that widespread distribution of a vaccine will take many months, kind of echoing what Redfield said. So, Jay, what do you take away from this? I mean, is is President Trump pushing an unrealistic timeline? Is he overestimating the likely effectiveness of a vaccine? What do you think? Well, I don't know, because, again, I don't know about the uh, the military and the, uh, the uh, <laughs> logistics that, that he does. Um, you know, my my sense is well, first, first, I do want to hit on Redfield's one statement, which I think is sort of weird of the, uh, you know, a mask may be more effective than a vaccine. Um, well then Jesus, what, what the hell are we messing around with? The, you know, well, let me be clear. We, what have we been doing here? If, I mean, no, you know, if, if of, you, if you read, so why, that, why did we shut down the economy? Then? No, no, no hold on. Time out. I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's an unfair statement. Cause if you read what he said in context, if you read all of his remarks, he clearly said, that not that a mask, sorry, not that a mask is better than a vaccine, but that given the fact that vaccines are not 100% effective, that until we have mass uh, immunity vaccination to the point where it's not, you know, 
spreading essentially that masks offer more guaranteed protection. And I think a lot of people are maybe taking things out of context and uh, whether intentionally or not misstating what Redfield meant. Well, I, I just, I just took it from the, the context that, that you gave me there. So sure. I, I read his whole the, remarks. Well, I, I only read part of his remarks before the, before the Senate committee. So, uh, but anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there, but um, uh, look, I, to me, I, I don't know that the, what Redfield and Trump are saying are, are is mutually exclusive. Um, uh, I, I my my sense is I I don't know that Redfield would would have the knowledge of whatever logistical uh, stuff we have have available to to get this distributed. Um, uh, I mean, we do know that the you know the U.S. from these trial vaccines we've got so far has already been purchasing, stockpiling, getting ready, uh, and again, I don't have any you know, real insight into, you know, how or how this, how it would be distributed, how long it would take. What about um, the effectiveness? So I, so I, I guess I'm, I'm saying, I, I don't know that they're, they're wrong. Cause it seems like most people are consistently predicting, look, we'll have a vaccine, um, you know, that will be approved mm-hmm. uh, before the end of the year. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and I again, think, you know, that's a, that's a, so fair... how quickly can we distribute it? That's a, that's a second question. And the one, the first is a medical question and the second is a logistical question. Yeah. And that's a fair point. And, you know, on that $6 billion for vaccine distribution, I should point out that neither party in Congress seems very interested in a single item emergency appropriation for this. And which you would think if there'd be any one single thing that they could get together on, it would be this. But also, I would argue that if President Trump was able to free up somewhere around $8 billion for a wall without congressional approval, I expect he could probably oh, yeah, find, find a way, way. yeah, to get that yeah. $6 billion. So, But I think that's an important distinction between the logistics and the, the scientific part. But on the scientific part, I think, you know, probably I would be inclined to agree more with pretty much all the scientific experts on vaccines saying that, hey, you know, 50 to 70 percent is what we're shooting for and not, you know, not what the president seems to be suggesting that it's going to be, you know, this extraordinarily super successful, most effective vaccine ever type of thing. And I would imagine you would probably defer more to the scientists over the president. Yeah, on- no, I, I mean, look, it's, it's the, the Trump is it's, you know, beautiful, powerful wall. Um, you know, it's. You know, is that that's, dangerous? That's typical, that's typical Trump Trump hyperbole. Is I that mean, dangerous? Do you think? I mean, the idea that you know, and of course, that goes with his comments to Bob I, Woodward downplaying the the yeah. virus. His argument being that, well, I don't want people to panic. But is there a, is there an issue with raising false hopes? Do you think? Um, I don't. I mean, I don't know if when we were saying raising false hopes. Uh, I mean, if people would be like, the vaccine isn't as as terrific and and uh, powerful as I hoped. I, you know. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I saw an interesting stat, you know, then the, so the, the, the Democrats have been pushing on the, well, if, if Trump, um, uh, moves too quick on this, they might have something that's not safe and so forth. Um, first of all, I, I don't think that's really that much of an issue because it's these pharmaceutical companies that are making it. It's not, it's not a Trump branded vaccine, at least not. Um, so I'm 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 less concerned about that, uh, and then Trump has pushed back with the argument of you know the Democrats are essentially being kind of anti-vaxxers and trying to arouse fear. But the polling numbers of people who would be willing to take uh, a vaccine when available 
there's actually more trust by Democrats than Republicans. I just thought that was that was interesting. So if the argument is that um, uh, Trump is going to be Republicans are going to buy that buy into this too much and might might uh, have overconfidence in a vaccine, um, it doesn't doesn't seem to be at least the numbers I've seen don't seem to show that. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a general sort of. I mean, conservatives tend to be more skeptical of everything and. Uh, well, and I think something coming from the government, even if it's the Trump government. Yeah. And I think just the fact that, you know, there, there are still a lot more people who are uh, Republicans, Trump supporters who don't necessarily believe that COVID is a thing or a big deal. And and I think that that sort of view is promoted, even if indirectly, by the president being very sort of wishy washy on masks and having large scale gatherings like, you know, for his campaign with no social distancing and no mask. I mean, that sends a pretty I think that sends a pretty strong message to people saying, you know what, this isn't really anything to worry about. Well, then, is, isn't it a good thing that he's pushing that everybody ought to get the really terrific, super, uh, very beautiful vaccine? Absolutely. I, I think I think it absolutely is a good thing. I only wish that uh, given the fact that I would I would agree that it's going to be a while until a vaccine can be distributed widely enough, even using the military and that. And, and given that it's not going to be 100 percent effective, I only wish that he were as as strongly pushing masking and social distancing until that point. But he's decided. Oh, fair enough, no, fair enough. That's a that's a fair point. OK, um, one, one thing I would, you know, in terms of what you mentioned about uh, Republicans not thinking this is a, a thing. Um, to some extent, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if if that could also be regional, um, uh, simply because look, you've you've got uh, the, the virus has had a, a much bigger impact in urban areas than places that are more spread out. Now, that's changed a little bit, mm-hmm. I would say, in the last couple last month or two. There's been sort of at least I know in Ohio, it sort of moved out of urban areas are now sort of um, recovering, and the flare-ups have been. Um, in more rural area, but uh, I think there's there there is a, a a line of thought that's not irrational. In that, if the um, vaccine is not you know 100% safe or it's not safe enough, people will evaluate their um, their sense of of the safety of the, <clears throat> the vaccine uh, against what they view their risk of of getting uh, COVID. In. Yeah, um, and and they're making that choice based on their their own situation wherever they are so if you're out in the middle of montana and someone says well we've got a vaccine that's you know 70 percent effective but it may cause some side effects um would you say yes i'll take it or would you say well you know i live out in the middle of nowhere and there's really very few cases out here i'll i'll I'll, i i would i would be reluctant so again that's very hypothetical um i'm wondering if so i'm wondering if some of that might play in so like for example if if someone came up and said, hey, um, you know, we have a vaccine for Ebola um, and it's it's 99 percent effective, but there could be some you know, side effects uh, and they offered it to me, I would say, well, no, thanks. Just because my risk of contracting Ebola sitting here in, in suburban Cleveland is is pretty much nil. Sure. Right. So. No, I, I see what you're saying. But I, I think you'd probably agree with me that there's going to be a not insignificant portion of the population that will decide not to get vaccinated. And that combined with the fact that we know that even optimistically, 
the vaccine isn't going to be more than probably 70 something percent effective. And the fact that it looks like the leading candidates require two, uh, two shots and there's going to be some issues with people getting both in the right amount of time and that sort of thing means that we're going to be living with this certainly throughout most of next year at, at the very minimum. I think that's I think that's probably right when you say living with this, but but I'm I'm to some extent I think you also might start seeing as as we've sort of seen already that that the virus is going to run out of steam to some extent on its magically on its like own. the president said it'll just get you know I, I don't know about no, that no no I mean look that's that's you know things seasonal they they come and go and well and that's not true with the get, virus though and and in fact you know even in Europe now we're seeing with the relaxing restrictions that they're getting. There, there are more. We're starting to see an increase in cases, and that. So, I mean, it's not like this just goes away. It's not. It's not magic, you know. Oh no, and I'm, I'm not saying it. It just goes away. Um, but there, there is. I mean, look, whether you achieve, you know, herd immunity through vaccination or through lots and lots of people getting it, uh, there is at, at some point you you, you sure, start to reach a saying. point of, of look in certain populations. Uh, in certain places, you have a, a pretty high concentration of, of people who have had the virus, like New York. Yeah, but even there, um, it's not anywhere close to a... a right, right, no, it's not, it's not a 60, 70 percent. Yeah, her, yeah her nowhere community. even but close. There, there is, there is a, a, a slowing of... Uh, and, I, and I think there's just also... Uh, look, I mean, every as best we can tell, right? And, and no one knows for sure, is once you get it, you have some immunity at least for some period of time. Uh, there's questions about whether you cracked it and how long that lasts. But, um, uh, I, you know, that's my, my point is, uh, yes, I agree that we will still live with it. Uh, I don't know that we will be living with it, uh, certainly in the way that we were in, in March, and, March and April of this year. I see what you're right? saying, yeah. Like, yeah. I think people would still be maybe wearing masks, but I, I think there will be a lot more Things open, people will be going back to school. Life, life will be more normal. Uh, it may not be a hundred percent normal, but it'll be. At least, you know, we hope there are obviously some predictions yeah. out there that say that by the end of this year, uh, you know, over four hundred thousand people will have died from this, and that it's going to get considerably worse as we get into as we get into the fall. And let's hope that that's not the case. But I think we both agree that the responsible thing for everyone, from the president of the United States on down, is to. Yeah, before we have a vaccine to encourage masking and social distancing. And it, it's hugely disappointing that uh, for whatever his reasons are, that Donald Trump has chosen not to do that. Agreed. OK. Well, let's move on to something that, well, isn't hugely disappointing. It actually hasn't gotten a lot of play and we'll get even less now that, uh, well, you know, with, with uh, Justice Ginsburg. But early this week, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain signed the Abraham Accords in a ceremony at the White House. The agreement establishes formal diplomatic relations between the three countries, though it doesn't address the issue of the Palestinians, which has been for a long time now almost an insurmountable obstacle to better relations between Israel and most of the other countries in the region. At the ceremony, President Trump said, we're here this afternoon to change the course of history. And after decades of division and conflict, we mark the dawn of a new Middle East. What do you think, Jay? Does this change the course of history? Um, well, I mean, anytime we say this changes the course of history, there's sort of, well, that, that remains to be seen. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of a big predict. 
Um, is it a step in the right direction? Absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I think it's, it's, uh, if you look at where, uh, the Middle East was, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I mean, it was, remember when it was such a huge, uh, deal with the, uh, uh, Begin, uh, Sadat, uh, Accord, uh, Nobel Peace Prize worthy, um, because that was the first time you had had an, an Arabic or predominantly, uh, Muslim uh, country. Um, recognize the the state of Israel. Um, uh, so now, you know, those numbers are are growing, and, and two and to I four. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's big. Um, and even you know, even Joe Biden says he supports it. So yeah, I think yeah. Uh, essentially, it seems to me that everyone but the Palestinians is pretty happy with this agreement. Right. Well, you know, you know, and well, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about that because I was wondering, you know. We have this agreement, and, and uh, most people would say that given how close Bahrain and how closely they kind of follow what Saudi Arabia wants, that we've seen the Saudis kind of come around a bit, too. And there's some suggestions that, well, you know, maybe this helps to pave the way for, for the Saudi Arabian government. And that would be that would be enormous. And, of course, this is all yeah. because of that common enemy that they have in Iran. Iran. And so my what I'm wondering here is. Is this sort of the beginning of the end for the Palestinian cause? And this is not a small question because there are somewhere around 5 million Palestinians living in, uh, is, in the Israeli-occupied state of Palestine. And, you know, to kind of put that into some context, the population of Israel itself is just over 9 million, and only around 75% of that population is Jewish. Most of the rest is Arab. And, and yeah. so— Although I should point out that and when I mentioned this to my wife, she's, as you know, Jay, an international relations professor. She said, you know, very smart. Yeah, very smart. Absolutely. Um, she said, you know, Palestine's not actually a state, even though I it's told you that. Oh, I could have told you well, that. Yeah, but, but I, I mean, it's, you just call it the <laughs> state of. Yeah, exactly. Because it's even though it's recognized by as such by 138 U.N. member countries, including India, China and Russia, it's not recognized by, you know, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, the UK, and of course the US, and obviously Israel. And so it only has observer status in the UN. And it seems to me that maybe there's more of a move to say, even in the Middle East, that you know what? Hey, we gave it a shot, but the threat of Iran is a much more important thing to us than the fate of the, and I think there are somewhere like around in the whole region. Uh, close to 13 million Palestinians. And I, it seems to me that some of the governments in the region are saying, yeah, you know, that's too bad, but uh, we're more concerned with uh, we're more concerned with the Iranian threat than we are with getting you getting you statehood. Yeah, no, I, and, and I'll, I'll say that I think that's probably always been the case. Right. Um, well, when if, Iran if you, was less of a threat, yeah, that would that you could no, balance no, no. That but, but in terms of in terms of the rest of the Arab world really supporting the Palestinians, I think they they gave them lip service for for you know the better part of sixty eighty years. Uh, but when it came to actual uh, aid, uh, the Palestinians, when it came to accepting refugees, uh, they were they were not so they were not so enthusiastic. Yeah, they were happy to use it as sort of a, a cudgel uh, against Israel, but uh, you know didn't offer real and and the you know then then you have the Iranian sort of Syrian uh connection and, and I think a lot of, a lot of the other part of this is that the Palestinians uh have been ill-served by their leaders historically 
think that's, you know, there, there have been numbers of, of bits and starts where we've had proposals that maybe could have worked, but, but have fallen apart. It's, you know, I, I mean, I think, it's yeah, hard. They, they yeah. may have, yeah, and the, you know, look, the, the leadership of the, the Palestinian Authority has been, um, I'll go ahead and say it, hopelessly corrupt uh, for you know, 30, 40, 50 um, and linked to, to terrorists. That's, that's been part of the problem. I think there could have been a deal. And, and look, I, I, if, if they, you know, maybe an upshot of this is the Palestinians throw out uh, their leadership uh, and get, get new leadership that, that will work more with these other Arab countries and Israel, you get a two-state solution. Um, but again, that remains the yeah, same. Yeah, I, uh, I just don't see, no matter what, I, I think the Palestinians could have the, the most... But, but I think sterling. you're right. I, the other Arab countries are not going to stick their necks out for the Palestinians no. uh, any more than they have in the past, which is not much. And, and you really have to feel for the Palestinians because... They have been ill served by everyone. It, they're in, you know, there are an awful lot of them, and they're just basically, they're getting, and I'll say it, just screwed over by by the world, by their leadership, by essentially everyone, and when, and their status is it, it, it's really a tragedy. All right, uh, let's move on, Jay. Uh, you know, geez, this is going to take a while, but that's okay. So it'll be an extra long, uh, an extra long thing. Of course, we again weren't expecting. Uh, the news about Justice Ginsburg, but Attorney General Barr, oh, my God, um, he has caused quite an uproar this week for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one thing, in a recent conference call with federal prosecutors, Barr suggested that rioters should be charged with sedition, which is a, a fairly uncommon charge, which some critics felt would be overkill. Um, to say the least. And Jay, you're, you're probably, you probably haven't dealt with a whole lot of sedition charges in your legal career because it you is, don't deal with it. It doesn't come up that much. You know, I mean, it basically involves attempts to uh, put down, overthrow or destroy by force the government of the United States. It's, to it's sort of war. treason light. Yes, exactly. And I think the reason why this is being called out isn't that uncommonness of it so much as the sentence. The sentence for tradition, or so the maximum sentence for sedition is 20 years, and that's significantly longer than the maximum sentence for federal charges that are a lot more common that could be potentially laid against protesters. Like, for instance, right. um, civil riot, disorder, yeah. five yeah. years, uh, destroying government property. That can be up to 10 years, depending on the value of the property destroyed. But this certainly ups the, ups the ante significantly. And so before we get into the other stuff that the attorney general said, I wanted to get your take on how you feel about his suggesting to U.S. attorneys that, hey, maybe sedition should be on the table. Um, well, first of all, I wasn't, I wasn't on the call, um, so I don't know what exactly the remarks were. But, uh, you know, in some cases, I, I think you could make out a sedition case, right? Uh, when the goal is, when they're saying, I want to overthrow the government and I'm here to burn down the courthouse. Uh, yes. Um, but I would also think that those cases are probably few and far between. Um, you know, actual, actual sedition of, of I, I am here espousing, uh, participating in the, the violent overthrow of the United States government. Um, uh, so, yeah, my, my sense is, and then also the thing to consider is lots of times when uh, people, Government brings prosecutions. They they tend to overcharge uh, with something that is is uh, very big, 
even if they might not be able to make out the elements. Uh, and then you back off and get a plea to something something lesser. So I, I mean, think, like we're charging you with sedition, but we'll but we'll take uh, right if you want to plead down to arson and yeah, got you. Um, uh, so again, I don't know entirely the context in which uh, he made that, uh, and, and I think you'd have to look in any case if any federal charges are brought, they need to have uh, at least uh, the probable cause or a grand jury finding that, that there are facts to support it. Um, and sedition is probably difficult to prove um, for that very reason that there's sort of an element of, of motive. Ah, uh, good that, point. It's kind of built into it, right? Yeah. It's not just, um, why are you, why'd you want to burn down the courthouse? Well, you know, because I was mad about George Floyd, or if it was, no, I want to overthrow the government. Um, it's it's difficult to prove that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would think a sedition conviction would would be would be hard to get. Um, you know, maybe in something like the um, you know Seattle Chaz area where they sort of declared themselves, uh, you know, for a couple of weeks their own their own sort of country. Um, you know, maybe that that sort of helps. But uh, again, I I so I don't I don't think it's a, a a huge deal. I think it's probably more being made out of it than. Okay. Not to be. Well, well, let we'll me see. ask. We'll see if there's any actual sedition prosecution. I'm pride. guessing there won't be. Yeah. Doubt that there will be. Yeah, I'm guessing there won't be. Now, now the other other thing I wanted to mention out of this sort of trifecta of things that the attorney general said is relates to some public comments he made. Um, uh, one thing he said. This is to a Chicago Tribune columnist. Uh, uh, he said, "I think we were getting into a position where we were going to find ourselves irrevocably committed to the socialist path." I think if Trump loses this election, that that will be the case. Now, and during that same interview, the attorney general said, agreed that he is not supposed to get into politics. Um, so there you go. Uh, now, to me, this seemed to be a, just a, a, a startling statement for a sitting attorney general to make, uh, especially one who says he shouldn't be getting into politics. And I got to say, I agree with uh, Jonah Goldberg on this, who, you know, uh, who wrote, he said that he's done trying to defend him because he seems so determined to go out of his way to invite criticism. And he also suggested that, you know, uh, uh, he's creating a problem here. And if Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch crossed the line and he thinks they did, of course, so has William Barr. And I wanted to get your take on this. I think it's uh, I think it's an unforced error. Um, I don't get why he needed to say that or or or, uh, or or go there or or what he would accomplish by saying that um yeah because he is, knows right he knows that charge that he is that he hears all the time that he is being political and carrying water for the president and so yeah to say something so yeah that just that just blew my mind and, and i don't get that no Why i mean I, do that? look i think the, the attorney general can still certainly uh state his his opinion on Things like uh, the kind of the direction the country's headed in um, uh, was it was it wise to do so? I'd, I'd say no. I don't think he I don't think he accomplished anything by it. And especially um, such a wild thing, saying oh, if President Trump loses, irrevocably committed to the socialist path. Whoa! Well, <laughs> no, that's that. That I is. Would, just, I would say that you know, is maybe not irrevocably, but well, that, um, well, he did. I mean, he is, used the word <laughs> irrevocably socialism. My God, is, man, take a pill. Well, there, there is certainly, uh, let's, let's put it this way. The socialist agenda has been more at the forefront and, and more pushed and has more support 
than I think at any time in, in our history. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? Maybe, except maybe like the twenties or something like that. I was going to say the twenties, certainly a lot more. Yeah. But I, I would certainly say that there in are ter- in terms of people who are now office holders and in places of power yeah. who, uh, or presidential candidates who've openly identified themselves sure. as, and as that, socialists and that, proposed things that most people would say are well, no, socialists. Bernie Sanders identified himself as a democratic socialist is right, a different right. thing, actually. And it's an important distinction that people oftentimes want to pretend doesn't exist. But well, and I, I often, I often say that, yeah, what's, it's the, uh, once, once you get get over the democratic part, uh, well, Europe, they, no, they that's, that's about that. Then, that's, then that's, stick that's, with the socialism. Sure, that's true, but there are plenty of countries in in Europe that have that have stuck with democratic socialism and haven't letting the democrat go. So I think that you're wrong and always arguing. No, sorry, you're wrong and often arguing for slippery slopes that don't exist. So um, you know, and so I think it's one thing to say, hey, you know. I think if Donald Trump loses, we're going to end up going much further to the left, uh, to a path that resembles, that seems to resemble socialism. And it's another thing to say that we are going to find ourselves irrevocably committed to the socialist path. Those are so, two so very would different you, things. Would you, would you have been okay with his comments if he said uh, we will be maybe committed to democratic socialist path? No, I think that the attorney okay. general should not say anything about about this sort of thing. I think he should literally stay out of, you know, commenting about political candidates and so forth. I think that's a, okay. that's a wrong for him to do. Now, speaking of other wrong things, well, I don't know, this is a little more debatable, certainly. So, no, so, no I, can, I, will, I will definitely debate you on this one. On okay. The, the remarks he made at Hillsdale College, a conservative school in Michigan, I believe it is. Um, and, and, and the thrust of his remarks was to counter the claim that he's improperly involving himself in political cases that should be left, according to some, largely to career Justice Department prosecutors to handle. Barr said, the power to execute and enforce the law is an executive function altogether. That means discretion is invested in the executive to determine when to exercise the prosecutorial power. And he went on to say, it's become fashionable to argue that prosecutorial decisions are legitimate only when they are made by the lowest level line prosecutor handling any given case. The Justice Department is not a praetorian guard that watches over society impervious to the ebbs and flows of politics. And he basically argued that the practice of headhunting, that is going after prominent individuals to make a name for yourself, was a real problem in the Justice Department. And according to some of his allies, he argues that they argue, sorry, that this was intended to apply both to anti-Trump prosecutors as well as to people who push for investigations and prosecutions of like Barack Obama and Joe Biden. So so Jay, what did you take away from the attorney general's remarks? I I think he is uh, spot on. Um, This, this is, I mean, our justice department uh, ought to be subject to political civilian control. Absolutely. Um, And I think it's, it's a, that uh, that has shown up uh, the FBI issue uh, in the Michael Flynn prosecution uh, in in a lot of these these issues where there is a government bureaucracy. Uh, I'll go back to this is a Barack Obama administration. It wasn't Justice, but Lois Lerner, where you have um, non-elected uh, bureaucrats who are often there forever, uh, more or less, uh, making making decisions. Um, and listen, either either we have a if, if you want to have a, a democratic republic, 
that means that law enforcement is subject to uh, uh, political accountability. And I think you're, you're better served when you have a system that, that uh, people are yeah. politically accountable. Now, Barr, of course, isn't politically accountable directly, but, but President Trump is. And if people don't like the way Barr is handling the Justice Department, uh, then uh, take it out on Trump um, ballot box. So, and I, just I just to be clear, Jay, on this, uh, based on you know the, the the plain wording of what the Attorney General said, that the President gets to decide ultimately through the Attorney General, the President gets to decide who's prosecuted and who's not, and if that means that the President, working with his Attorney General, decide that. All of the president's enemies get investigated and prosecuted, and all of the president's friends don't get investigated or prosecuted. That's okay, and the only remedy for that is to boot the president out of office or impeach him. I'm not. I'm not saying it's okay uh, because, first of all, all it of is- it would have to be within the bounds of, of due process, right? Within the, the justice system, and you've got. Uh, the Justice Department, which serves as the prosecutor, and then you also would have the federal judiciary, which uh, is serve as uh, an independent uh, branch and, and a check against that kind of executive power. Sure. Putting that um, aside, though, Jay, I mean, the, the power to investigate and charge certainly is an executive function entirely. Yeah. And that means that, again, taking the attorney general's remarks just as he said them, which is why I sort of questioned some of his allies spin on it. That that means that, hey, if the president wants somebody prosecuted, then that person should be prosecuted by his Justice Department. And whether the courts find that person guilty or not guilty, that's a that's a separate thing. But that's you know, that's that's perfectly OK. No, I, it, it's not OK, because, again, there are there are also civil rights statutes that we have in place that prevents that sort of prosecution for for just the harassment of, of political enemies, prosecutions for political purposes. Uh, so there, there are remedies against that. There are safeguards against that. Uh, and I think it would be wrong to do that. Can you talk um, a little bit about that? Because it, I, here's, here's my understanding that it doesn't take much of a pretext for the Justice Department to open an investigation. And oftentimes, if you go on fishing expeditions, you find things, which, of course, is what, you know, President Trump's allies have been arguing for forever, basically. And, and so, what I, I'm asking you, you know, what is there to prevent a Trump bar Justice Department from just really going after the enemies of Donald Trump or alternately, and maybe this is more of a concern, just deciding to turn a blind eye to potential abuses by allies of the president? Well, again, the the this, the hedge against it is, for one, whoever is being investigated. Uh, is going to be able to retain counsel. Uh, two, they're going to be having uh, hearings in court. Uh, they'll be a subject to, or they should, under our Constitution, uh, be afforded all the uh, exculpatory evidence that uh, is compiled against them. Um, that was something that was not done in the Michael Flynn case. But isn't it only uh, after they're investigated and charged? Or am yeah. I wrong on that? No, you're you're right. I mean, you don't, obviously you don't have, if someone, if the, if the, the uh, department decides to investigate someone uh, and they come up with nothing, uh, then they come up with nothing. Uh, if they, you know, and, and you could sort of say, well, maybe there's a no harm, no foul, which is, which again is one of the reasons why uh, typically U.S. Attorney's Office does not 
publicly say there's an investigation until they are close to being ready to, to bring charges. Um, but I mean, just so, the fact of investigating and charging someone can be pretty damaging. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the, what about the and, reverse? And, and look, and if you, if you have an investigation that is undertaken for political reasons, uh, you could sue the government. You could sue the people investigating you. Now they would have, they, they would have numerous defenses they could raise for qualified immunity and so forth. But, um, there's, there's still a remedy there. Uh, you can say, look, these people were out to violate my constitutional rights based on uh, my, my political, my, my, my political belief. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's there. And, and I guess the other thing I would, I would point out is to what extent have we, have we really seen, uh, and Trump's been in office almost four years now, the Barr administration prosecuting Trump's yeah. enemies. And I think that that's, that's an important point to bring up, which is why I, I asked you also about, and I hope you can you know, speak to this. Right. And you would say, you would say it's the other way around as they're letting off a trend. Yeah. And so, and you know, a lot of people would point to the, uh, uh, to the, uh, the, the Flynn case there. Right. I mean, so. Right. But, what, but I, I mean, would, I would, I would point back with the Flynn case that that's exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about where you had an investigation. Right. That was based on really not, not much uh, at all. There was no actual crime being charged except maybe Logan Act. Um, but, but I'm uh, saying been, more generally, it's easier to do. It's easier to not to get away with not prosecuting and not investigating because it's sure, something. And sure. so that's that's a greater potential abuse. And so sure. I, I guess it seems to me, Jay, that there is, if not in law, sort of by practice, there is a an unwritten rule, a tradition of the attorney general of political appointees in general trying to act with a light hand when it comes to very these very political things and not to just be totally hands off. I, I would say I would say they should act with a light hand to all political things all the time, because but, one, that's one of the I think one of the worst things that's been happening is the. the uh, well, I agree, but it seems like you know, attorney the, we're, general we're Barr politics doesn't. into prosecution. Well, see, I think you and I agree on this, but it seems to me that based on his comments that the attorney general doesn't so much agree. He's basically saying, hey, this is all my call and political or not, you know, let's not worry. I mean, you know, and again, this goes to Goldberg's remark. The, the fact that the attorney general went out of his way to belittle and inflame, I, you know, I, I never thought I'd say this, but it almost I almost found myself longing for the days of Jeff Sessions, who at least understood, had some respect for this sort of, you know, tradition and unwritten law and not, not going out and just trying to make himself a focal point for this. And no, I, but if, if you, if you read the whole thing where he also talks about the, the political head hunting, uh -huh, yeah. I think that's, that's, you know, you got to take that in that context. The, the issue is um, you have line prosecutors who can make a name for themselves by uh, having a big political investigation, sure. whether it's successful or not. Yeah. 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 Um, and and by doing so, what we're doing is, you know, we're we're essentially, you know, look. If you want to say that, can you take the, someone's political motivations out of something altogether? Uh, probably not. Um, but you can put accountability in. So, for example, with uh, the Michael Flynn situation, um, you had prosecutors who, again, altered FBI agents, um, altered emails. To, to falsify a warrant uh, the, 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 to a secret court to spy on somebody. And, you know, that goes to that person's politics and the politics of the department. And, and there's no remedy uh, for that. 
right? If these are career line people, there's no remedy for it. You can't, if you remove the president, uh, they're still going to be there. Well, they can be uh, removed as well. Attorney general, they're still going to be there. No, they can be removed. Uh, uh, it's, it's not, uh, <laughs> I would say it's not, not easy. And if you look at who's going to do the removing, the person who has to do the removing would, would necessarily be the president right. or the attorney. No, general. and I'm, I, I don't disagree with you. There are, there are issues either way, which is why it seems to me that the attorney general is seeing this in a very black and white type of way. And, and I don't agree with that. It's almost like he has this sort of, you know, Louis XIV view of the executive, this kind of, I am the state. But, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these other folks, all of these, you know, political appointees, which meaning every U.S. attorney, for instance, takes an oath to defend the Constitution. And that oath right. supersedes. It's not an oath to the president. It's not an oath to the department. Right. And you just can't ignore that. And it seems to me that, that that Attorney General Barr is going too far in one direction here. Like, if he really cares about being above the fray, he should, for instance, say something like, you know, uh, in comments to uh, the president repeatedly saying, the only way we can lose the election is if it's rigged. Well, you know, instead of inflaming things by, you know, talking a lot about, you know, the potential for massive vote fraud, he might want to, you know, comment on that but he has gone out of his way in a just an inexplicable way for me if i want to grant him uh a, a good faith the, the, the fundamental belief that he's acting in good faith he's acting in a very weird way as well and it just it, it he keeps on making it harder and harder for me to say no here's just the guy who believes in the strong executive and he's acting in good faith but yet he's doing all these things that make it so difficult for me to give keep on giving him that benefit of the doubt let me say one of one of my biggest issues, and I've this has sort of come out throughout, uh, you know, our discussions of the last couple of years, has been, and I think this is a a big issue for a lot of Trump supporters, is what they see as an unrestrained, unaccountable, uh, federal leviathan, right? That who is actually in charge, and and it 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 does it it gets sort of uh, strange when any time you know new administration comes in, an executive branch is that. That is their job is to run the executive branch. And I mean, look, you, you, I think it's, you can't disagree. The department of justice is part of the executive branch. Right. No, I, I, I can't and disagree. And I think no, that's a mistake. No, Absolutely. No ways yeah. About it. Yeah. And, and the head of the executive branch is the president. Yep. There's no two ways about that either. Um, and, and that's, that's sort of the, the point is if, if we consign, create this new, um, sort of entity, this permanent bureaucracy that just sort of serves the Constitution as it sees fit, uh, or like Praetorian Guards. And, and you know, for those who don't follow who the Praetorian Guards were, they were the bodyguards for uh, Roman emperors. And when the emperors got a little out of hand or kind of crazy, which which many of them did, Praetorian Guards killed them. Um, so it was, in some ways, well, it's probably good that, you know, you got rid of some of these guys like Ligula and Nero and so forth. Um, but that's not our system, and I don't think that's the system we want. Uh, our system is, if you don't like what the uh, president or the emperor is doing, uh, you vote him out uh, based on that, and you have some political accountability. Uh, there is no political accountability for the Praetorian Guards. They're always there. You can't vote them out. Well, and, of course, that's, it, was a, it was not a great analogy because, of course, you can get rid of career civil servants. And speaking of not great analogies, there was, of course, the other one that, that I would be remiss. And listeners, I'm sure, would, would be disappointed if I didn't at least mention the analogy he made between 
at least indirectly between lockdowns and slavery, which was which was at the very least just something he should have thought in, in better artful. of saying. Yeah. And, and and again, I, I just in terms of how he has conducted himself in public life, putting his policy choices aside, I think he has just been incredibly inept in his public statements and a, a huge disappointment. Well, and, and well, you know what you can do about it? Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I'm going to do it certainly, but well, I mean, there you go. but that, but that doesn't mean that, that, that I mean, you're what, right. What, of what am I, what, what am I going to do about uh, Peter Strzok? Well, I mean, you, you know, you elect somebody who might remove him. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's accountability. Right. That's what I'm saying, though. But if, if the person I elect can't remove him, right. what do I do? But are you, are you, that's, can, where, that's where, that's what it comes down to. But if there's no one like that. The line prosecutors. Except for, except for, the, there's no one in our system, there's no one in our government, Jay, who can't be removed. Right. So I, you're, you're arguing a case that I don't understand. You're saying that there no, are these I people. You're, you're arguing exactly the, the bar case, right? This is, the, the, the whole point is, uh, these decisions ought to be made uh, by people who are politically accountable. Now, see, this is why I'm disappointed in you, Jay, because normally you have a lot more nuance here. And I think you're you're making the mistake, if I'm reading you correctly, that the attorney general is, is that it must be all one way or the other way. When actually, I think there are a lot of things that have, require a certain amount of not exactly in the letter of law, but discretion and uh, a certain amount of consideration of all the factors. Sure. And, and you, I know you believe in this in sure. a lot no, of areas absolutely. of life. And so that means that but the end, but the end of the day, somebody's in charge. Sure. Absolutely. And it's, it's either, you know, but that doesn't I, I guess, mean, let me, let me, let me ask it this way. Cause maybe we're talking past each other. That's always possible. Sure. You're, you're, um, you know, if, if you have a career prosecutor, um, who brings a charge, and the attorney general feels that it is uh, not substantiated uh, or that this career prosecutor is uh, abusing his or her authority, uh, political headhunting. Um, what, what is the remedy under, under the, what you're proposing, as I understand is that, well, the, the attorney general shouldn't get mixed up in this. No, no, no. Right? You, yeah, you are getting we mixed are, up yeah. in politics. We are, and we I'm are talking no, past each other. Yeah, no, we are pa talking past each other. I would, I would say that certainly, if the attorney general is clear and strong, you know, compelling evidence that this is the case, he or she absolutely should act. But I'm saying that absent that sort of clear case, the attorney general should try to kind of take more of a hands-off, except for in those sort of extreme cases. Yeah. And I don't I know that you disagree. I with think that. that's that's what ha I mean. I can think of a numerous. Um, you know, look, political prosecutions, some that were, were terrible, one, Ted Stevens, which was political headhunting, which <laughs> Justice Emmett Sullivan sanctioned the government uh, for their actions. Um, and, and I'm also thinking of, of other uh, political cases where, uh, yes, it was absolutely warranted. And you had, for example, here in Cuyahoga County, we had a big federal investigation um, uh, and, and most of our county government jail. They were all Democrats, but it was uh, conducted by, prosecuted by uh, an Obama appointee during the Obama administration. They followed through and they got, got, I believe, a just result. And there were actual crimes committed and there was plenty of, you know, stacks and stacks of evidence. Um, likewise, right now in Ohio, we've got a situation where our, our 
uh, former Speaker of the House, been uh, arrested by the FBI and is being prosecuted. And again, there are mountains and mountains of evidence. And this is under the Trump administration by a Trump appointee uh, after a, a prominent Republican politician um, who, was, who was actually a, a, a big Trump supporter, one of, one of Trump's biggest supporters in Ohio. So, I, I mean, I, I, I think that that works. And in both cases, I can, I can say, yeah. Uh, and from what I've seen so far, there is a ton of evidence to support these prosecutions. Um, but when you go to something like a Michael Flynn, it, there, there isn't that type of, of evidence there. And the prosecutions were, were again, not even started by, uh, you know, line prosecutors. It's, it's internal FBI people. So that's, that's my concern is somebody has to be in charge, uh, at the end of the day. And that person ought to have political accountability. And I, I don't, you know, for all, I think for all the nuance and all that, but yeah. And I think. That all factors in, but sure. there's got to be somebody who can say I'm in charge. I, I, I think uh, I, I think we don't disagree as much as maybe it came off earlier that we were to a certain extent, maybe talking uh, past each other. And I'll, I'll just end by saying that I would certainly be more comfortable with you as attorney general than William Barr, because at the very least, I think you would not sort of be blundering around like a bull in a china shop and, and I think inflaming an already inflamed political envi environment. I, I probably wouldn't. Yeah, no, and I appreciate I, that. I think so. Well, I appreciate your support on that. Absolutely. So. Well, uh, we, we are already running very long, but if you want to hear even more from us, we, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about everything going on with the Postal Service. There was a big uh, uh, nationwide injunction that was that was issued this week and jay i know how you feel about nationwide injunctions we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about that mail they sent out uh we're also going to give our very first and very detailed election predictions that and a bunch more so if you want to catch all that check out the bonus show which will be coming out which we release on wednesdays and uh, that of course is for our Patreon supporters, if you want to become a supporter and get that and ad-free versions of everything, just check us out at patreon.com slash politicsguys. And remember, if you can't afford to become a supporter, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you full access to everything we put out. Also, if you please could, it costs nothing to subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially sharing episodes on social media. That helps us out a lot. Thank you very much for doing that. If you just generally want to get, get in touch with a question, comment, that sort of thing, mail at politicsguys.com. Also, check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. You'll find the URL on our show notes and our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politics. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.